Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, uh, just a while ago, Scott Gardner put on the uh, Two True Freaks Facebook page. Basically, it's a it's a challenge. What he wants people to start doing on that page is posting something positive, something that is, at least in his estimation, a little bit different from what the tone of that uh, page has become. And part of the reason for that is just a little bit of drama. Somebody, a long-time core member of that group, uh, had been considering quitting. And so his challenge was to post something positive. And challenge accepted. What I posted, and what I think pertains to this podcast is as follows. Part of the reason I started a podcast of my own is because I want to talk about comics and related media that I enjoy and also sample stuff I've never tried out before. One thing that's become increasingly clear to me is just how much I truly love my comics. The Silver and Bronze Age Superman, the Wade, Kitson, Legion of Superheroes, which by the way is definitive in my estimation, the Gerard Jones on The Shadow Strikes, Secret Six, and lots of other stuff. I feel truly isolated from modern-day DC, but there's so much awesome stuff out there from before 2011 that in some ways I'm actually kind of glad to have a, a kind of closed canon now. In some ways I actually think it's a blessing in disguise, at least for me, to have Flashpoint number 5 as the solid endpoint. You know, the, let, let the youngins have their imitation, Superman, because I'll always have the real thing in my collection, and nothing is ever going to change that. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. finally started getting some feedback on all of these shows. I guess the uh, main reason for that is because the show's finally gone live, so people are now finally hearing it, and so um, there's finally something to talk about. So, I guess first up, I received a text message from a listener by the name of Dave, and Dave wrote, Digging the podcast, sir. Keep it up. Uh, thank you, Dave. That, that is actually very much the, uh, the uh, plan. Um... It's not like I was planning to uh, cancel it any anytime soon, so uh, there is that. Next, this uh, this was a, a Facebook posting that somebody made on uh, 
via Trentus Magnus Punches Reality uh, Facebook page, Scott Rifen posted, Just listen to the first punches. I didn't think you'd be able to hold me by yourself for an hour, but congrats, you did. The scoring was well done. Um, so first of all, thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate that. I was actually kind of uh, nervous about the score. I wasn't sure if I'd actually done the the uh, mix of it all right. And so, um, of all things that you could have possibly said uh, about the uh, first episode, that was actually the one that I was the cons- I was most concerned about. So thank you for mentioning that in particular because you've really set my mind at ease. Um, then let's see. He and I then had a little bit of ex- uh, of an exchange, and then he followed it up with, I've never bagged on Smallville, but I never watched it much either. I thought the pilot was good, so I stuck around. After about four or five weeks of Kryptonite uh, Monster of the Week, I stopped watching. I do have the first five seasons on DVD, though, so I guess I need to dig them out of hiding, and then uh, after that I gave him some encouragement to do just that. Because, very frankly, this is uh, my favorite live-action incarnation of uh, Superman. So, definitely uh, definitely interested in that. Let's see. Next, this was, in, this was actually um, an email that I received from uh, Professor Allen. He's the, uh, for those of you who, who don't know, he's, uh, he, he does the uh, Quarter Bin uh, podcast. And uh, his daughter does Uncovering the Bronze Age, both of which are good. And... Um, you definitely need to be listening to them. So uh, he says, uh, Trentus, I just wanted to let you know that I'm enjoying your new show. Boy, do you move fast through books. I like that. I like the pace. That sets your show apart from other comic book shows. Keep up the good work. And this was actually something, he, this next bit actually relates to something that he and I had been talking about. But he says, since you asked, I have, a pr- I have attached a promo for my show, the Quarter Bin Podcast, and my daughter's show, Uncovering the Bronze Age. And so you can expect to hear more of those uh, promos as we as we go along. So uh, to Professor Allen, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to write in. And um, uh, just enjoyable email. And uh, I definitely uh, appreciate the feedback. And for the rest of you, you can reach me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Send me an email. I'll uh, be more than happy to read it on the show, and um, I would love to get some more feedback about this. So, by all means, please do write. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, and welcome back. First up this time is Young Justice. I'm not talking about that doofy animated series either. This is real deal. 
This is a uh, Peter David series which debuted back in September 1998. This was a breath of fresh air in my comic book reading life, as will become evident in just a moment, but for now, into the summaries we go. Young Justice number one, titled Young, comma, space, just us, shows the beginning of the team's uh, first adventure together. Superboy, Robin, Impulse, and Red Tornado respond to trouble happening at a nearby archaeological dig. They uncover a five-wheeled, semi-sentient motorcycle that uses a force field to bond them to itself and then zooms off with them into the stratosphere. Uh, The issue actually opens, though, with uh, each of the members having a particular kind of nightmare. Robin dreams that his hand has been gnawed off and replaced with a batarang. Superboy dreams that he has giant flaming wings coming out of his back, and Impulse dreams that he's making these high-speed changes from a human into a, shall I say, hulking beast, and... (laughs) If you have any kind of familiar uh, familiarity with Peter David's work, um, I think those references are going to be pretty clear to you. So, the boys wake up simultaneously, of course, and then they just are just staring at each other. Camera pulls back, and we see that they're kind of having a sort of a slumber party. And it comes out that this is a—they're uh, staying in a, in a uh, headquarters that had been donated by the Justice League that the Justice League wasn't using at that time, and start bickering with each other and before too long Red Tornado shows up and kind of skewers all of them with um, uh, uh, Freudian as as he put it let me flip to the exact thing here at page 9 Freudian psychoanalytic terms and he um, basically uh, identifies impulse as the I, I guess mindless thoughtless living id of the group all instinct and Really, no thought before or after of, of consequences. Superboy is ego, as Red Tornado says. Uh, he's capable of uh, basic morality and ethics and simple judgment calls and things like that, which of course means Robin is super ego, and he's just more refined, obviously, than all of the others. And this doesn't exactly sit well with Superboy, who picks a fight with. Uh, Red Tornado over who gets to be Super Ego. So, <laughs> that was that, that was just uh, very funny. After they get to the um, archaeological dig, uh, what they find, uh, it's... They basically end up crosswise first with uh, characters by the name of Fightin' Mad. Uh, from the... Um, from the All-Purpose Enforcement Squad, the Apes, basically. And uh, they have as they put it, more clearance than God. So the members of Young Justice get a little crosswise with them. And then before uh, too long, they end up facing, or not facing, I guess, a character by the name of Mighty Endowed, who is so... trying to think of... Well, whatever. She's got such big boobs that she can't even stand up, right? She just falls over. And, of course, Young Justice, early Superboy, they don't see them as... Uh, don't, uh, they don't see Mighty Endowed as a villain, <laughs> necessarily. So, anyway, so, of course, the super cycle uh, comes to life and captures the boys, zo- uh, zooms off in, into the stratosphere, and then 
That is basically that. In the second issue, Sheik, Rattle, and Roll, uh, they've barely managed to get the cycle back under control, and it appears to be following the last command it received. It's taking them for a hell of a ride. The boys argue over whether or not to call it the Super Cycle before they're forcibly taken by the cycle to Sheik Ben Stein's palace. Superboy inadvertently uh, uncovers Ripor, the, uh, the beast who owns the cycle, and who confirms that yes, it is in fact called the Super Cycle. Riproar is eventually encased in hardened lava, and the boys decide to keep the, sup the uh, Super Cycle for themselves. Um, may seem obvious, but Sheik Ben Stein, obviously he's a, a play on Ben Stein, that's, that's who the character is basically modeled after, his speech patterns, and that's pretty much who he looks like. But there's a, there's a part at the beginning of the, um, uh, the beginning of the issue uh, that talks about, um, let's see, which page is this? Page three. Uh, basically, we see the maiden voyage of Titanic II. Uh, this is a $500 million replica of the original of the, of the original RMS Titanic, and of course, it's about to uh, smack an iceberg. And there's apparently something to this. Um, I don't really remember all the details. I just remember it was it was a, a little over a year ago when everyone was going going through all of their Titanic 100 years later kind of retrospectives um, that someone had had mentioned that someone else was working on some kind of a Titanic replica right so I checked it out and sure enough you and these days you can't really do an exact replica of the Titanic there's just a lot of reasons for that but um, actually in a lot of those reasons a lot of those maritime laws are actually because of the original Titanic um, but you know this is uh, one of those things that actually I don't think it's I don't, I don't think it's actually been made yet but I don't know this has some kind of uh, interesting synergy with real life it's kind of funny anyway uh, but it ends up being kind of a false alarm because the members of young justice crash into the iceberg and completely destroy it thereby sparing the ship so at least that one won't be sinking um, anyway so this this entire issue uh, as I say kind of centers around um, uh, uh, ben Stein, even his uh, speech patterns are very uh, reminiscent of his character from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In fact, it's on uh, page eight. Um, uh, the Sheik, so, uh, he's he's looking at this big box of of jewels. <clears throat> he's looking at this uh, big box of jewels, and uh, he says. To his harem, I guess that's who those women are. Uh, he said, "Well, these are just lovely. Has anyone else seen anything quite this lovely? Anyone? Anyone?" Horrible Ben Stein impression. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is actually maybe it would have been funnier at the time, but I don't know. Ben Stein is just sort of kind of pervasive in pop culture now. It's I don't know. It just uh, it's not as clever as I now as I remember it being back then so but what this issue really really does is um, establishes red tornado as <clears throat> it establishes red tornado as sort of the mentor figure of the team he's not really the leader he's more the the Charles Xavier of the team 
I'll talk more about the art in just a bit, but I really like the way that uh, Todd Nock does Impulse's uh, super speed. He, he doesn't go with the uh, Carmine Infantino approach of... Um, I don't even know how to describe the way that Carmine Infantino does it, but what, it, what uh, Todd Nock does, he just draws several impulses in one, in one panel, and you, and you can just follow the, um, the dialogue balloons and uh, impulses uh, direction. And you can kind of get it, you, and that's and that's basically how you follow the action. So each of these is, you know, it's not it's not that there's multiple impulses actually in the panel. It's just that's how fast he's moving. And I always kind of like, at least for impulse, I kind of like doing this better, just because he always seemed to me as a more kind of cartoony uh, type of character. He's got this very over the top sort of uh, personality, and I, I just think this this just works better. So I've always liked it when artists do this. Then on page 22, Robin has this sort of melodramatic little soliloquy, he says, of rip-roar. He says, he broke free from captivity only to discover that ultimately his greatest captor was his own dark nature. And it's, it's just kind of poking fun at those... It's, it's just a trope of comic books, especially in the Silver Age, that they would end with some kind of... Uh, uh, moral, and usually someone, because apparently the reader wouldn't necessarily grasp this on his own, somebody actually explaining what the moral is, and then Robin kind of calls him on it and says, are we going to have a moral at the end of every adventure? I don't know, I just, I, I liked it, I thought, I, I just thought that was really funny, so. So anyway, Young Justice, number three, Number three, entitled The Issue Before the One Where the Girls Show Up, features Young Justice being challenged by a scholarly imp from the fifth dimension at a Halloween party. Meanwhile, Red Tornado flies around Chicago observing the Halloween festivities and remembering his daughter from another lifetime, so you can kind of rest assured he's going to reconnect with his daughter before this issue's over. Back to the Halloween party. The imp observes the kids' behaviors uh, when they're subjected to various experiments. Young Justice uh, attempt, at least, to duke it out, but they're hopelessly outmatched until they realize this is Mixes Pitalik at a much younger age before he became mischievous. Superboy makes him promise to never become a prankster, and that causes a time ripple, and it, in effect, destroys reality. Thinking quick, Robin shows him uh, old uh, Three Stooges shows Mixes Pitlick promises to never be anything but mischievous, anything but a comedian, in honor of Young Justice. And I enjoy, as I've said, I mean, I enjoy uh, Todd Knox's art all through this. Um, but uh, a sort of goofy, over the top uh, character like uh, Mixes Pitlick, it's it's just a dead natural for uh, Todd uh, Todd Knox and. All of the uh, Halloween party sequences are just gold. But um, I think probably the standout moment, there's a two-page splash, which I don't think Nock did too often, but you know, when he used it, it was always to good effect. And this one has Superboy lifting a bench that has uh, some girls, uh, some costumed uh, party-goers, some girls sitting on it, while Impulse simultaneously bobs for apples, hangs out with the DJ, 
samples some of the snacks, gets his picture taken with uh, some of the other party goers. Uh, he's he's literally all over the place here, and uh, I just I, I dig it. And in the middle of all of this, you have Robin trying to ride herd over this whole mess, but he knows that he's he's on the losing end of this one. So you know, apart from that, you know, one of the things that I thought about the first time I read this comic was I thought it might have been kind of cool if Young Justice or maybe just Superboy had gotten kind of an, an imp of his own. The whole thing about Nix's Pitalik is that Superman's a pretty straight-laced, straightforward, and good person. And that's why Nix's Pitalik is such a good foil for him that here's a, this mischievous character who does nothing but test his patience. And I thought that something... Um, Something like that for uh, for Superboy might have been uh, kind of funny as well. Not necessarily another another type of uh, mischievous character, but another fifth dimensional imp that, in some way or another, could clash with uh, Superboy and and his personality. And that ended up never happening, and certainly not in this issue. And um, I can't really fault this issue for being something that it's not. But at the same time, it just kind of felt like, you know, when I first read the, you know, when I first looked at the cover, it, it seemed like there was just a promise to it. And I, and I guess I hadn't realized how much juice the idea of Superboy having an imp of his own really had until I, and, until I saw the cover. So the fact that it doesn't really happen in this issue, or in fact, I don't think ever happens, but it certainly didn't happen in this issue. I mean, it was just, it was kind of a disappointment. It's still good, you understand. I just, that part, it was a little bit of... I don't know. Let down. Another nice touch. This came on page 20, and I guess 21. After the moment that Mixus Pitalik makes the uh, transformation from being a relatively serious scholarly type to, well, Mixus Pitalik, he sort of has a, a little bit of an exchange with uh, the student who's operating the movie projector. It's a kid by the name of Mick Gurk. Now, in the in Mixes Pitalik's first uh, uh, first appearance, he was he was wandering around the city and he was looking for a character by the name of McGurk. So I thought that was nice touch. So in the fourth issue, entitled "The Issue Where the Girls Show Up," we're introduced to Arrowette, Wonder Girl, and Secret. Arrowette is nearly killed by Harm, a 17-year-old supervillain prodigy, until he realizes she's friends with Impulse, and so he decides to let her go. Much later, Arrowette sneaks a ride on the supercycle back to the Young Justice hideout and tells the story of how Arm came, he saw, he kicked her ass. Members of Young Justice go looking for Harm, but he beats the hell out of them, too. The issue uh, actually opens, and I don't know why or to what, but this kind of feels like it's, a, it's an homage uh, to something else. It's Arrowette standing against a, a brick wall, um, her shoulder, her left shoulder has been perforated by an arrow and uh, there's a little bit of blood dripping off it and what she's saying is, um, this isn't funny I'm, wait a minute, this isn't funny and there's something about it, the angle and just the amount of detail and effort that obviously went into this page I have no idea what this could be uh, an homage to, but it just looks like, sometimes um, in any kind of fiction but I guess since what we're talking about comics, sometimes in comics, you see something that it's 
obviously an homage to something. You just don't necessarily know what it is. So, but this is one of those things. Um, whatever this is uh, making a tribute to, I or whatever at least I think this could be making a, a tribute to. I've never, I haven't seen it in the how long? Like I guess 15 years since this issue's come out. So no idea, but um, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know why. It just it looks like this should. This is kind of a tip of the hat to something. Anyhow. On page 7, we see Tora getting carted away by the police, and there's a little bit of a Scooby-Doo reference there where she says, And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those meddling kids. I don't know why, but Scooby-Doo reference, at least that particular Scooby-Doo reference, never gets old. That never wears out its welcome. Um, I love Scooby-Doo uh, as a kid, loved it, and just I always like, I always like it when anyone makes a reference to that line. As I said, this issue introduces, among other uh, characters, uh, Wonder Girl. And there's a sort of close-up on page 12 of Wonder Girl. And it l- there, it looks like she's, I don't know, modeled after somebody. There's, I don't know why, but uh, page 12, the next-to-last panel, it she just looks familiar. Like, I'm placeable, I have no idea who, but it looks like... This is a celebrity of some kind. I just have no idea who it might be. But there's something about the nose, the shape of her lips. It just reminds me of, I don't know, somebody. Like, maybe like a really, really, really young Nicole Kidman. Like, this is supposed to be a sort of teenage Nicole Kidman. I don't know, but it just, that's how it it comes off. Okay, as to the series in general, if you've never read these comics before, you need to understand that the summaries here do basically zero justice to them. They are filled with funny dialogues, side gags, uh, characters like fighting mad, impulses, thought balloons, which often have pictures in them, and other things that a summary just can't include. Now, I first read Young Justice when I was working at a supermarket, which I'd, I'd started doing in the summer of 1998. I was about 17 years old, and in fact, actually, I was 17 years old, and heading into my senior year of high school. What had happened was my my previous job had sort of ended, and not necessarily on the best terms, but I still needed some kind of job, so I'd taken this job at, uh, at a supermarket and worked pretty much as the janitor for the place. Worked from Monday to Friday, and, and this is, by the way, uh, what I'm talking about when I started in the summer. I worked from um, Monday to Friday from 9 in the morning until about 4 in the afternoon. My job was to do things like mop up baby vomit and things like that when idiot moms would bring their little bundles of joy into the store, shake them up like beer cans, and then wait for them to spew. Believe it or not, though, it really wasn't as bad as you might think, um, because oftentimes there were no messes to clean up, and in such cases, as per instructions from my boss and company policy, I was supposed to sit in the storage area of the store and just wait until it was time to clean something. Until that point, I was free to do basically whatever the hell I wanted. Now, realize, this wasn't Magnus slacking off on the job and just wasting time. No, no. My boss wanted me to sit on my butt just hanging out until 
until it was time to get to work. So, because comics were sold in supermarkets back then, what I would do is set up a little table in the back with a, a chair and pull each week's new comics, smoke cigarettes, and just hang around and read. And I did this all day long. And yes, it was awesome. Now, I'm a DC boy through and through. I'm DC born and DC bred. And when I die, DC dead. So, name a DC comic book that came out around this time, uh, at least one that would have made it to newsstands, and odds are I've read it. Now, I may not have retained it, but I've probably read it. Of course, there were only so many comics, and eventually you need other stuff to read, so I read Wizard Magazine cover to cover. I took quizzes in Women's Beauty Magazines. I learned, I learned a shitload about rifles from reading Guns and Ammo. Um, I wasn't really the type to do it, but if I'd ever decided to fix up my car, I would have known which parts to buy because I, I read all of the racing magazines that came out, and there are, there are other things too. Think about it, people. Eight hours every day of just hanging out, reading comics. And then after that, you run out of comics. Comics only last so long. You get to a point where you'll read anything that's on the shelves. Now, I'd really hate it if any teenagers, or adults for that matter, heard all of this and thought, Gee, Wally, I want to be a janitor too. My best advice is don't. I mean, like, really don't. Don't do this unless you have no other choice for employment. It's kind of a long story, and it may be TMI for some of you, but what ended up happening was I came down with Satan's own case of mono. Just to put that in perspective, I've got a very strong immune system. Then as now, I was known to catch a little bug or something, maybe once or twice a year, but I was never the type who would get deathly ill. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I've always been tougher than that. But this shit was so bad that I ended up missing two months of school my senior year. Two whole months. In fact, fuck it. What I want you to do, I want you to go to Wikipedia right now and check out all the different symptoms of mono. Now, realize that I had every single fucking one of them. Plus a few others, too. Now, I won't say my janitor job is where I was exposed to all that shit. But I won't say that it wasn't, either. So, moral of the story? Don't work as a janitor unless you absolutely, positively have no other choice. Anyway... Because I was reading uh, pretty much everything that came out, I hope it says something that Young Justice always stood out as an amazingly funny and entertaining book. Always looked forward to every new issue because Peter David knew how to write engaging and witty dialogue. And I should say that this was actually my first real exposure to Peter David. I'd never been a, a, a big fan of the Hulk. And what I'd heard about Supergirl and all the changes he'd made to the character had turned me off. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I, 
yes, I've read his Supergirl since then. And yes, it is awesome. But I didn't know any of that at the time, so this was my first time reading anything from Peter David. But I saw the cover for issue number one and said to myself, Ooh, okay, it's got Superboy. Hey, I like Superboy. And hey, it's got Robin. Ooh, I like Robin, too. And looky here, Impulse is on the team, too. I loves me some Impulse. For whatever reason, I was never big on the Teen Titans. And maybe it's just to do with my age. The heyday of the Titans was a little bit before my time as a collector, so maybe it's just that I missed out on the craze, but even now, I just, I don't see what the hullabaloo is all about, but Young Justice? This book didn't take itself too seriously at all. Uh, Todd Knox's art had this slightly cartoonish edge to it that I, I loved then and love now. And it was as if this this whole inter- enterprise was just designed to push all of my fanboy buttons. The effect of all of this, though, is that when the book would get serious, and as it would, when it would get serious, it hits home all the more because it's just so drastically different from the usual sort of comedic things that it does. Todd Knox's art is the perfect companion for Peter David's over-the-top, almost surrealistic scripts. Each character not only has a distinctive look, but also a distinct body language. Pretty much anything Impulse says or does in this in this comic is pretty much gold. Um, there's a moment at the very end of the first issue where the super cycle is flying skyward into space, and it's taking the boys with them. And you see Superboy and Robin both freaking out, but Impulse is kicked back and relaxed, laughing hysterically. He's having the time of his life, and it's just... It's hilarious. And then I'm going to flip back through to issue one here. There's... Yeah, that is issue one. Very good. I just want to be sure about that. Knock also deftly handles the more serious and emotional scenes, too. Um, Pick back up issue number four, because I have ADD. Uh, there's a moment where Harm's parents try to bring him back under control, but Harm makes them back down with just a few words. It's a pretty short scene, it's only about two pages long, but Knox Art sells Harm as a real force to be reckoned with. And remember, you, you remember what I. There's a moment actually in issue number three. Yes, here it is. Alright. Issue number three. If this sounds like it's not taking long for me to find this stuff, it's because of the magic of editing. And anyway, issue three. Peter David, what he basically does is he's able to effortlessly shift gears from the Halloween party that uh, that the boys are hanging out in, and immediately switch over to a more serious scene and write Red Tornado as this sort of lost, tragic character who only wants to reconnect with his family, but has lost the emotional faculties to do so. He remembers what humanity is like, and he longs for it, but he's unable to become human again. Uh, Also in this fourth issue, uh, Harm is written as a true threat uh, to young justice. Uh, Everyone talks about, you know, what a dangerous motherfucker the guy is. But then he's actually shown to be a threat. He's also just kind of a scary-looking guy. Um, These are just... 
these are these are the uh, just a, I guess a kind of smattering of the few more down to earth and serious moments in a sea of zany, over the top fun, and so they really stand out and benefit from this dynamic contrast. When I really think back on it, though, Young Justice was one of the last comics I can ever remember that was just fun. There was no over-the-top melodrama. There wasn't a year of building up to a storyline that would take and then two years to get through. And mostly this is the kind of comic that DC wouldn't be caught dead publishing today. And I think that's a damn shame, because I miss comics that were just light and enjoyable. You know, people bitch and complain all the time these days about how much the industry has changed in terms of the type of books that get, that get published, but it bears repeating that the comic industry today is tonally very different from the environment in which this edition of Young Justice came out. And I can't really sit here and argue that the 1990s had book after book after book that were just um, fun superhero adventures and nothing ever got too dark and violent and gritty. But at the same time, Young Justice exemplifies the kinds of risks and chances that DC was willing to take back in a time when their survival didn't hinge almost exclusively on trade paperbacks. And I guess what I really think of each time I read Young Justice is how it felt to be young and the sensation that DC was almost completely in sync with my sensibilities as a comic book reader. It's, it's really been a long time since I felt that way. Um, maybe DC One Million which also came out around this time, wasn't everything it could have been as a crossover. But DC, back then, it just kind of felt like they were, they were forward-thinking. They weren't as obsessed with reboots and retcons and all this idiotic bullshit then as they are now. Back then, and I realize I, I, I have to sound like an old, cranky, curmudgeonly comic book fan, but... Oh, back in my day... But back then, it was, it was enough that a comic book was a fun read. And Young Justice is a fun read. Peter David understood how to write this book as a way to introduce new readers to the individual characters of Robin, Superboy, and Impulse. And even if you didn't know anything about Batman, Superman, or The Flash... You could, you could get what you needed to know about these characters and, and have a great time as you did it. Great art, fun stories, no need for a new 52. That sounds like my kind of comic book. And now, I'm going to take a short break, play some promos, and come back for some more comic booky goodness. never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters 
is that 50 Cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Gram. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. And I'm back. The next comic book is Justice Society of America number one through four. Beginning with the August 1992 cover date, this series ran for ten issues before being summarily canceled. From the Wikipedia page it says, Fan interest resulted in DC bringing back the JSA in the early 1990s. And an eight-issue Justice Society of America limited series, which by the way, this is not what I'm talking about, telling an untold JSA story set in the 1950s was published in 1991. In the final issues of the four-issue Armageddon Inferno limited series, the JSA returned to the modern-day DC universe when Wave Rider transported the Daemon of the interdimensional Abraxas to Asgard as a substitute for the JSA in the Ragnarok cycle, allowing the team to return to Earth. In 1992, the JSA was giving uh, was given an ongoing monthly series titled Justice Society of America, and this is what I'll be talking about, written by Lynn Strazuski with art by Mike Perobeck, featuring the original team adjusting to, their, adjusting to life after returning from Ragnarok. Though Justice Society of America was intended as an ongoing series and was popular with readers, it was canceled after only three issues had been released, though the decision was made to actually end the book after ten issues. Fans' reaction to the quick-handed cancellation was fierce, and the decision was roundly criticized in fanzines and budding electronic bulletin board services like CompuServe. Writer Lynn Strazuski, in an interview explaining the cancellation of the surprise hit series, said, and I quote, It was a capricious decision made personally by Mike Carlin because he didn't like Mike's artwork, meaning Mike Parabek's artwork, or my writing, and believed that senior citizen superheroes was not what DC should be publishing. He made his opinion clear to me several times after the cancellation. Now, I want to I pause from reading the wiki page for just a sec. I've actually heard it a few ways. Obviously, the story about Mike Carlin personally canceling the series is out there, because I just fucking read it, but people that I would normally trust have also said that sales of the title in spite of what I just read, were actually pretty low. And that's what ultimately drove the cancellation. Now, I don't know. I wasn't there. And it's not like I have a grudge against Mike Carlin. I've never even met the guy, but he seems pretty cool. I'm just saying that there is more than one explanation floating around out there, and I wanted to at least acknowledge that. But to go back to the wiki page, much more cartoony 
quote-unquote, than the more realistic artwork favored at the time, Mike Perobeck's artwork was a, pione- was a pioneering example of the, quote, animation, unquote, style that would become quite popular with Batman the Animated Series. Justice Society of America included the first appearance of Jesse Quick, the daughter of All-Star Squadron members, Liberty Bell, and Johnny Quick. That's the end of the Wikipedia quotation. And I suppose now's probably a good time to get into the summaries. And so we get into Justice Society of America, number one, with the August 1992 cover date. The issue starts off with uh, a series of people, really, uh, entering uh, Gotham Stadium. Among them are Clark Kent and Lois Lane. It's unclear at first what they're there to see, but it eventually uh, comes out when the members of the Justice Society of America are welcomed into the stadium and indeed sort of welcomed home as heroes. Um, And these include uh, Sandman, uh, Alan Scott, Green Lantern, Our Man, Hawkwoman and uh, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, uh, Starman, Doctor Midnight, uh, The Flash, the Jay Garrick version, and the uh, the Atom. Oh, and uh, Wildcat. And um, there's even this uh, on page four. There's even a uh, neat little scene between uh, Lois and Clark, where Clark sort of gets lost in sort of. Justice Society fanboy affection really is what it comes down to and Lois kind of calls bullshit on him Um, she says uh, Clark, Clark, are you listening? Clark says, oh sorry Lois it's just that those guys down there are quite an inspiration to a young man in my line of work Um, after that uh, introductions are made the members of the uh, team are introduced to the crowd and again it it sort of goes back to uh, uh, Clark getting lost in fanboy admiration for the team. He, he even said, God, I love this panel. What he says is, these guys are the real thing, Lois. And then, of course, it, this whole thing doesn't last very long. This huge monster attacks the, uh, uh, attacks the stadium, gunning for uh, the Justice Society of America. The members of the team uh, attempt to spring into action, um, but they're somewhat outclassed by this thing. They're caught off guard by this monster, and then Superman shows up um, and sort of steals their thunder. The crowd cheers Superman on. Like there's, um, at the bottom of page nine, uh, Jay Garrick uh, says, the mayor's safe and the evacuation's underway. What next? And then Hawkman says, we watch. And they watch Superman pretty much completely demolish this thing. And then on page ten, it, um, we, we see... Uh, someone that looks like he's uh, covered in bandages. He's watching this whole thing, and he's and he's pissed off about it because it, it's obvious that the the this attack on the stadium. These are all his machinations. He was trying to destroy the Justice League. He wasn't gunning for Superman. He never planned on Superman, and so this is kind of a monkey wrench in his plans. In any case, Superman uh, pretty much uh, takes. The, uh, takes the uh, the monster out of action, but that's when the the Justice uh, Society realize they've got a man down. Sandman uh, has had another stroke, and so that's sort of a not very good ending to to this battle. We cut to a, a coffee shop, this diner, where Alan Scott and Jay Garrick are having coffee and eating donuts, and they're basically just 
lamenting their lives and and and, and everything that, that's happened with it, their their age and everything, just basically facing facing their their own mortality. Yeah, they they do have uh, some amount of youth for now, but but who's to say how long it's it's really going to last? No matter how you look at it. They just feel like relics. Jay Garrick even says, There's metahumans coming out of the woodwork since that alien invasion, and half of them are, are supervillains. Whatever happened to jewel thieves and bank robbers? Alan Scott answers, Superman and the new, and the new Green Lanterns don't just deal with crooks. They have to cope with mass murderers like that Dreamweaver nut. And as they're having their conversation, I... Uh, woman in this sort of 1940s film noir uh, sort of femme fatale outfit with the trench coat and the hat and the long blonde hair I mean not so much the blonde hair but the long hair and the sunglasses uh, she comes in and um, gets a coffee too while she watches she seems to understand exactly who these people are she watches Alan Scott and uh, Jay Garrick and tries to somewhat listen in on, on their conversation to get back to their conversation they're talking. They're talking about uh, retirement, and for people who are supposedly retired, it's funny that Alan still wears the uh, the uh, Green Lantern ring. While Jay demonstrates his own super speed and that he hasn't really slowed down, he accidentally knocks over a, a waitress, and the woman in in the hat and the uh, trench coat, at, using super speed of her own, catches her tray of, of drinks and. Uh, coffee cups and pitchers and all that stuff uh, from falling and hitting the ground. She catches all that stuff, gives it back to the waitress, and basically says, you didn't see that. You didn't see anything. So, their little conversation, to borrow a, uh, an expression from Thomas DJ, their conversation is interrupted by a, a news update from the Exposition News Network that says that uh, an armed paramilitary group has taken over the uh, Edisonville nuclear power plant they call themselves the New Order, and basically shit is really hitting the fan. So, uh, Alan Scott switches over to his Green Lantern outfit, Jay Garrick switches over to his Flash outfit, and uh, they swoop into action. As they do it, uh, Alan Scott says, I'm really going to miss retirement. Not. Because, hey, it was the 90s. Watching him go, the, the uh, blonde woman... Uh, says that she saw everything and she loved it. Uh, Alan and uh, Jay swoop in on the uh, power plant. They pretty much take the members of the New Order down. Um, just take them out like... Uh, th basically, they drop them like like sixth period French. It's, it's just not pretty. It's uh, pretty epic ass-kicking. And I, I love at the bottom of, uh, of uh, page 20, uh, somebody... The leader of the groups, he actually sort of looks a little bit like, um, I think, uh, Cable from the X-Men. Um, he has an eye patch and fires off this uh, sort of handheld uh, bazooka. Uh, Jay uses his helmet to uh, flip it around, turn the, uh, turn the bazooka back at him. And at the bottom of page 20, it's kind of funny because we see a, a close-up of the guy's face as the uh, little rocket comes right back toward him, his... His uh, eye patch pops up, and we see he actually has both eyes. So I thought that was that was kind of funny. Anyway, so uh, 
the uh, Justice Society, well, I guess not the Justice Society, but the Flash and Green Lantern, beat the piss out of the members of the New Order, and even some, they look like, uh, actually, you know what, these actually look like army, army soldiers. In any case, a, a young, I guess, private has a uh, sort of exchange with uh, his uh, commanding officer. He says, the, the, the little kid, this punk private kid, he says, Green Lantern, isn't he the jerk with the bad haircut? And I think I saw the flash in one of those tabloid newspapers, a young guy who dates starlets. And then the commanding officer says, no, son, those are the heroes we've been stuck with lately. And I have to tell you, rereading that, I fucking cheer. I ju- that was awesome. That was just so cool. And uh, this issue ends with, again, sort of a callback to that other joke. Um, uh, Jay Garrick and uh, Alan Scott, they're both, at that point, you know, having won the day, leaving the uh, power plant. Jay says, retirement. And Alan Scott says, not. Because, again, it was the 90s. So, that's the end of issue number one. Issue number two, cover dated September 1992, basically starts off... Um, with a guy who's uh, protesting a company by the name of Ultragen uh, getting basically slapped around by some Ultragen uh, uh, goons. Al Pratt and Ted Grant see what's going on. They get involved, beat the hell out of the uh, Ultragen uh, uh, goons, uh, basically come to the uh, protesters' rescue, and uh, that's pretty much that. In fact, there's... Um, God, I love I love this comic. Jeez. Um, there's this really... just badass moment at the bottom of uh, page three. Al Pratt grabs the Ultragen uh, a guy by the shirt, and with his fist glowing, uh, he, he says, because the guy's just pulled a gun, he says, I wouldn't, kid. Not unless you want a radioactive hole where your head used to be. And his fist is just glowing in this guy's face, and you can see that he's, he's pissing his pants. Who the fuck is this guy? Anyway, so um, they chase the Ultragen guys off, and then you know, pretty much did their good deed for the day. And then they start bickering amongst themselves. Uh, Pratt says, what in blazes were you thinking, Ted? Don't you remember uh, being in a wheelchair? Your legs could go out again any time. Any time. And they just, they bicker with each other about it. They go back and forth. Ted Grant gives uh, the uh, Ultragen uh, protester his card. Basically, you know, it's a business opportunity. If you ever want to learn how to take care of yourself, kid, give me a call. I can give you some lessons. It's just kind of a neat little moment. They make their way to uh, the GBC building, go downstairs. There they meet uh, first Alan Scott, and then they're joined by uh, Jay Garrick, and they pretty much are setting up or trying to reestablish Justice Society uh, uh, headquarters. And again, Al Pratt just has to be, I don't want to say a dick, but I guess maybe the voice of reason, arguing that they're not young men anymore. They're, they're old men who are hanging around in a museum, and they belong in a museum themselves. And fundamentally, they're just too old to be doing this, especially whenever there are young superhumans who can be doing all the same stuff themselves. Eventually, they start talking about this meeting that that's been called and Al Pratt basically wants to know where everybody else is because so far the only people who have showed up are Al Pratt himself, Ted Grant, Alan Scott, and Jay Garrick. So where is everyone else? What about... And what about everybody else? 
Green Lantern says that uh, uh, Wes, Wesley Dodds is uh, still recovering from his stroke from the first issue. Ted Knight called from his observatory in New Mexico, basically is lending his support. Or at least that's the official story anyway. Um, goes on to say Rex is spending some time with his son who's been sick. Dr. Midnight is setting up a new clinic, at which point Al Pratt asks about the halls. And Ted Grant asks about uh, uh, Johnny T., and right at that moment, uh, the halls actually call. They're, they're in the middle of uh, their own little... I don't know what you call this. It's expedition or, or dig. I don't... Actually, maybe I should have checked this, the archaeological term. But in any case, that's, that's what they're doing. They're basically calling uh, to say, you know, I'm sorry that we're late. You know, we should have called a little bit sooner, but we got caught up in something else. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Carter takes the opportunity to pass uh, the chairmanship of the group over to Alan, if that's all right with everyone else. That's fine by Ted. Al Pratt doesn't seem to give a shit. The halls get called away to something else, and at that point, it's, again, another update from the Exposition News Network. There's another ultra-gen po- protest that's, ha- that's occurring just across the street from uh, the museum where the Justice League are. They swoop into action, attempt to... Um, it's actually starting to become just a full-scale riot. Ultra-gen thugs are fighting, up, uh, are fighting ultra-gen uh, protesters. The members of the Justice League are trying to uh, uh, basically defuse the situation as best they can. And there's just this awesome moment at a, on a... Uh, page 19, where Al Pratt, the Atom, Al Pratt, punches a fucking tank. Okay? The tank rolls up, uh, is about to do some blasting. Al, without missing a beat, punches a fucking tank. Anyway, so members of the Justice League have corralled uh, the, the uh, Ultragen thugs. And again, we see the guy with the bandages. He's kind of having a conniption fit over them uh, about all of this. Obviously, this is not what he wanted. So they, uh, you know, have done their rescue, done their good deed for the day. Again, uh, they go back uh, to the museum, and there they see a mysterious blonde-haired person waiting in their little secret office downstairs. That is where issue number two ends. It's for issue number three. Cover date, October of 1992 title of which is Out of the Past. Starts off with uh, this man who's uh, jumped off a train, landed into town. He's trying to get into a free clinic, but the door's locked. He just um, is having to pound away at the door. Uh, the door opens and... Basically, uh, the door opens and it's uh, Dr. Midnight who lets him in. We cut back to uh, the... Justice Society headquarters, and we see that the blonde-haired gentleman uh, who showed up at the end of the last issue is Johnny Quick. Everyone is pretty much happy to see him, all, all except for Al Pratt, who seems to have a stick up his ass in general in uh, these issues. Everyone's happy to see him again. They welcome him back, and uh, Johnny basically um, goes through what exactly it is that he's been up to, his attempts to uh, discuss his uh, formula with the top scientists and uh, uh, physicians of the time, um, all of whom said it was impossible for a string of numbers and letters to give 
anyone's super uh, super speed. They said it had it had to have something to do with uh, his metagene, whatever that's supposed to be. Which I just I love that that little that little line just all by itself. They said it had to have something to do with my quote metagene unquote whatever that is. And of course he wouldn't know. None of that was commonly known at the uh, at the time. Um, I mean it was, but. He was a, he was off in Ragnarok when I, when all of the, all of that stuff came out, and so of course he doesn't know anything about it. So in any case, uh, he talks about uh, his attempts to start a company and everything that's happened with that. Just sort of brings everyone up to speed, and um, then the subject comes up about uh, Libby, uh, Liberty Bell. Johnny's kind of quiet for a minute, and then he says that the short version is they they broke up. Um, basically, Johnny was starting to. He was trying to start a company, and he thinks that Libby was embarrassed by all of that, and so that's that's basically that. At that moment, uh, Dr. Midnight shows up, and he starts telling them about uh, Reggie Lipscomb, the uh, saxophone player, and then he says he's gone, the guy's dead, he showed up at, a, at his clinic, and basically just told him some really weird stuff. Uh, Reggie says... Just wanted to come home, be around friends from the old days. Um, wanted to uh, basically just reconnect. Dr. Midnight asks, who did this to Reggie? Um, and Reggie answers that uh, whoever it was, they promised him a new start. They promised that they'd make him younger again. Um, and this was... He was being kept in a, a, a sort of zoo, a, just a weird place with... Animals like people, he says. It's on the beltway near near uh, Keystone. Uh, Doctor Midnight tries to uh, uh, help, uh, basically convince him to uh, keep fighting, stay with him. And uh, but, but just before he uh, just before he dies, Reggie says that uh, he stole the coat, and it's got a uh, the, the coat that he's wearing. Uh, it's a pretty nice coat, and it's got a. Uh, a an Ultragen logo on it. Basically, he stole the, this Ultragen uh, uh, coat from his captors. So, of course, Al Pratt then has a, uh, another one of uh, his, his outbursts. He says that it's time for him to, to uh, bring Ultragen down. Sounds good to Ted Grant. He wants to do some ass-kicking, but Alan Scott has to be the voice of reason and says this isn't like the old days. We can't just uh, run off and uh, pick a fight every time there's a rumor of wrong, wrongdoing. There are laws, there are procedures... And there are things that there are things that we have to do. We have a legal apparatus to, ab- to abide by. Uh, so after some discussion, so after some discussion about this, uh, Jay Garrick says, "Tell you what, just sit tight. I need to make a phone call, but I've got an ace in the hole." While he's gone, Alan Scott juices up uh, his battery. He, he uh, says his oath, and I love Alan Scott's Green Lantern oath. And I shall, s- and I shall. Shed my light over dark evil, for the dark things cannot stand the light. The light of the Green Lantern. It's it's simple, it's not as flowery as the Green Lantern core oath, but I just fucking love that oath. Anyway. We cut to uh, outside of uh, Dr. Midnight's uh, free clinic, and we see that a woman is sitting there. Actually, her name escapes me, but she's basically the nurse. Uh, Dr. Midnight's uh, nurse slash assistant. She gets attacked and then uh, uh, she, she gets attacked by Ultragen thugs and uh, tries to put up a fight, does what she can. 
but there are more of them, and let's face it, they have guns. So... In the middle of all of that, we see, on page 14, we see that a, a Johnny Thunder, which is walking up the street, he uh, passed a, a, a Charles McKnighter, well, Dr. Midnight's uh, free clinic. I uh, wonder what, you know, just what the hell's going on in there. He tries to help. He, he fights a few of the Ultragen uh, thugs, but they take him down, too. One of them even shoots Johnny in the shoulder with uh, his gun. I'm not even kind of, I'm not even completely sure what sort of gun this is even supposed to be. Uh, we just see him, uh, th that he pulls the trigger, Johnny, whatever it is, takes it in the shoulder, and um, he's he's injured, he's not seriously injured, but he is down on the floor for sure, and uh, at that moment, um, the nurse looks over and sees this uh, large pink apparition, and she says, aren't you a Badnesian Hexbolt? To which the Badnesian Hexbolt replies, yes, yes I am. Next, we cut to members of the uh, Justice Society getting uh, directions to the uh, research facility. These are Al Pratt, Dr. Midnight, and Wildcat. Well, Al Pratt, the Adam. So Adam, Dr. Midnight, and Wildcat. They sneak inside of the they sneak inside of the research facility and are basically attacked by these sort of mutant animals. There's a monkey, a lizard of some sort. It looks like a wolfman, and I don't know what this other one is like a tiger, human hybrid, it's something. Weird looking. Anyway, uh, before too long, after they after they uh, uh, fight and defeat the animals, they are interrupted by Ultra Humanite, and that is where issue number three ends. Issue number four, cover date November 1992, uh, picks up with issue number four, cover dated November of uh, 1992, begins with this red shape, this red uh, apparition, uh, streaking along and heading towards the uh, research facility where the uh, uh, Justice Society uh, were last seen, and we just saw them uh, get interrupted by the ultra-humanite. Uh, we see this red figure moving around, and then on page two we see that it's Wally West, the Flash. So cut to uh, uh, ultra-humanite's uh, headquarters, he has all three of um, the uh, Justice Society members, that is Dr. Midnight, the Atom, and Wildcat, suspended from the suspended upside down from the ceiling. Uh, they take turns uh, uh, shit-talking each other, and in fact, Ultra Humanite even uh, uh, smacks Wildcat in the face with a uh, handheld mirror. Um, then he just backhands uh, uh, the Atom. And pretty much he's going through all of his uh, as, as super villainy. Uh, starts monologuing a little bit, talks about um, how all of this came to pass, really. He says, For decades I moved from body to body, disguising my identity and preserving my life as I worked toward goals of conquest. I chose whatever movement was convenient, though I admit I sympathized with Defurier's uh, uh, goals. And my other colleagues, they thought I would share uh, with them, fools, if the Justice Society did not stop us, I would have eliminated them as well. And I should emphasize here that it's obviously, it, it's become clear, this is the, the figure that was swaddled in bandages from the last couple of issues. But anyhow. But always there was the rejection. Always the bodies betrayed me. I tried animal bodies. Strong, powerful forms that reflected my anger as well as my desire. 
and again you defeated me, and again I was betrayed, even by the beautiful beast's body. Then you mystery men disappeared, and I had my and I had time to plan my revenge, and my survival. I burnt out body after body, developing a new kind of power base, a business power base. I, I started with a small laboratory, seeking a solution to my little body problem. As my company grew, I was able to build this complex and put more res resources into my genetic experiments. Some were quite bizarre. And here we see, it looks like these sort of hybrid bat, rat, something else, predator bird, something else. Um, in cages, and and they're just trying to tear the uh, cage apart. They're just pretty fierce looking. It's about that time that Ultra Humanite gets called away. He leaves the room, and uh, Doctor Midnight uh, finally escapes from uh, uh, being suspended from the ceiling. He frees the others, and then uh, they make their escape. They they start fighting a bunch of uh, ultra, or at least Doctor Midnight starts fighting a bunch of uh, Ultra Gen uh, thugs beats the shit out of him. Meanwhile, we cut to outside and we see uh, the Flash, and again, this is uh, Wally West. We see uh, uh, the Flash moving around uh, the complex. He's looking for answers. He then gets uh, slimed, uh, just covered in this green slime. Ultra Humanite and uh, a couple of his thugs, and then also this another uh, genetically engineered monster uh, uh, come out, and it's Things are looking looking pretty pretty bad for the Flash. We cut to uh, Gotham University, a social services building, and there we see and there we see the the blonde woman from uh, issue number one. Um, she recites uh, Johnny Quick's uh, formula, and then uh, she's given super speed, and it's become clear that she's off to rescue uh, uh, the JSA. She's just received a, a fax. She's just received a fax uh, from her daddy, uh, basically saying that uh, the fax needs to um, be sent to the JSA. She says the formula, gets super speed, and zips off to uh, uh, pass, his, pass the message along. We cut back to the interior of the uh, Ultragen compound, uh, the hideout. We see Alan Scott and Jay Garrick. They're basically what they're what they're doing is they're reviewing various Ultragen holdings and properties. And uh, uh, Alan Scott says, this is what our GBC news reporters came up with on, on Ultragen, a real conglomerate. Weird stuff is legal. Hazardous waste disposal, biological testing, genetic engineering. We may not like it, but it's not against the law. So Jay says that what they need is evidence that the company's crossed the line and broken the law. They need some kind of proof. At that moment, they get interrupted by the, um, by the uh, super speed... Uh, by the uh, blonde woman who has super speed powers. Um, she passes on uh, the message. She says that she's not important. Just here are the papers. Read them. And she says that uh, Alan... Alan says that they're from uh, Johnny. And then Alan does this kind of... He does this really neat trick with uh, his Green Lantern ring. He basically suspends each individual page in its own sort of uh, hovering green ball of energy and that's and that's how he's reading them he's just wandering from one to another to another it's just fucking cool i love alan scott it's just, it's just fucking cool anyway so they go back and forth a little bit and then finally official introductions are made 
uh, Green Lantern, uh, Alan Scott, and uh, Jay Garrick uh, introduced themselves to Jesse Chambers, who is Johnny Quick's little girl. We cut back to the Ultragen compound and we see Ultra Humanite, who's still uh, picking on Wally West as he's being spied upon by uh, Wildcat and uh, the Atom. Dr. Midnight comes along and attempts to uh, rescue the Flash. He basically says, you know, it's not him you want, it's us, that, that old bit. Ultra Humanite says, well, maybe not, but any, any dead hero is a good hero, right? Um, he tries to persuade uh, uh, Ultra Humanite to take him in the, uh, Wally's place, but it's just not working. Even has a couple of good lines. He says, I can't see you, Humanite, but I know where you are. Do you know that I am a real doctor? And I value life above everything? Ultra Humanite says, What are you blathering about, you senile fool? Dr. Midnight says, Did you know that doctors sometimes remove cancer with super cold Freon? It's called cryosurgery. At that moment, Flash breaks free of his frozen prison and says, Boy, that was cold. Ultra Humanite promptly wigs out, but for all the good that does him, um, Dr. Midnight pretty much cold cocks him, breaks his nose, and then uh, the Atom and Wildcat spring into action, just as Alan Scott, Jay Garrick, and uh, Jesse Chambers all show up to help clean up the mess. And that is where issue number four ends. Alright, so... I first came across this book when I bought one of those three packs of comics from a uh, convenience store. Now, for you kiddies out there, yes, there was a time when comics were sold outside of comic book stores. Uh, the three-pack that I picked up included an issue of This Justice Society series, as well as uh, Comet Man, number one, from Marvel, for anybody who remembers that, and something else. There's something else. Damned if I can remember what it was, but there was a third book in there. Anyway, I guess the pack had been out there for a long time, because by that point, I recognized Mike Perrobeck's artwork. Now, I was in love with his work on Batman Adventures and wanted to check out what he could do with the Justice Society. And I wasn't disappointed by it either, but um, I just happened to be walking by, glanced over, and his, his style was so distinctive, and really still is, so recognizable that you don't have to stare at it and wonder to yourself, gee, I wonder who drew that. It's, it's actually pretty obvious. And I uh, wanted to see what he could do with uh, the Justice Society, and seriously enjoyed it. Now, as I reread the comics for this show, what became very apparent to me was just how much my my sensibilities about the Justice Society were almost completely informed by this series. My view of the Justice Society as the elder statesman superheroes of the DCU absolutely comes from this series. But beyond that, it's been a strong element of JSA stories lately that more than just being a team, they are a family. So they may disagree with one another, they may bicker back and forth, and there could be some other issues that are going on, but when push comes to shove, they're not just on the same team. They think of each other almost as brothers. So. To fuck with one of them is to kind of fuck with all of them. In fact, this series was influential beyond what I was originally expecting. 
As the wiki page uh, said, this series is where Jessie Quick was introduced, and I think a lot of you probably know that she became a, a pretty significant character in, in Mark Wade's run on The Flash for a while there. But I also think this, this uh, series was the first time that we really get a good sense of Jay Garrick serving sort of as a kindly old grandfather to Wally West. Um, they both lost Barry, and they both felt that enormously, but I swear to think this was the first time they began developing their own relationship outside the context of Barry, if that makes any sense. And speaking of grandfathers, when you strip everything else away, what I think this, se this entire series is really about is getting old. And not just getting old, but getting old and keeping your dignity. Not losing your sense of self self worth. In fact, it's now that I think, now that I put it in those terms, it's it's a lot like that movie uh, Boba uh, Bubba Hotep in that way. Just because the younger generation is coming along, doesn't make you or your life irrelevant. And the timing of this sort of book was pretty well done. You could argue that America hadn't really put much value on senior citizens since about the 1960s or 70s, around there. That was becoming a more well-known issue by 1992, you know, and it had relevance then, and probably still has at least some relevance now. Still, the overall tone of the book is more lighthearted and fun than a lot of other stuff that was coming out at the time. Now, even though I didn't collect the book before it was canceled, I remember hearing people talk about it during one of my occasional trips to my LCS. It had to be occasional because I was oof, I was a kid. I was 11 years old when this when when this comic came out and so um just I couldn't go there just any time I wanted to and so that was it, it was when I went though. I remember very distinctly um, hearing people talk about it. And the basic consensus of it seemed to be that this was a real shot in the arm for the industry. Um, a lot of people loved the, that darker, grittier stuff that was coming out at the time, but there was very clearly plenty of room for a lighthearted comic book that simply wanted to tell fun stories. The wiki page, man, uh, it, managed, it mentioned... Uh, some of the backlash against the book being canceled, and again, I can bear witness to that. When I visited my LCS after the book had been canceled, I remember hearing a, uh, a pair of customers just bitching and complaining about it. I, I'm, I guess they'd only just found out about it. I don't know. Um, they looked to be in their lower 20s and were, from the sounds of it, desperate to read something besides yet another dark and gritty superhero book. And they liked the balance that JSA brought to uh, DC's arsenal. And one of them in particular, I remember, was a serious Mike Perrobeck uh, uh, devotee. Um, the guy's opinion was that Perrobeck, and I don't know how this would even be humanly possible, but one of them thought that Perrobeck should draw all DC, uh, all of DC's books because the way he saw it, Perrobeck could draw anything and make it look cool. In his view, DC was fundamentally supposed to be a brighter, happier place than Marvel, and he thought Perrobeck was emblematic of all of that. 
And I think that's, now that I think about it, that's probably about as good a bridge into discussing Mike Parabek as I'm liable to get. As I say, I didn't read this book when it, when it came out. And so as a result, my introduction to Mike Parabek came from the Batman Adventures, where I, th- I think... He, uh, Parabek didn't draw the entire run. I remember Ty Templeton started it, and then I think there was somebody, or maybe somebody's. There, there was at least one penciler uh, doing a fill-in, after which uh, Mike Parabek took over. And then from there, I think he drew the bulk of the series. I think starting in... I don't know, but it was pretty early in, in uh, the run of the series. I remember that. Uh, I don't recall the exact issue number, but I know that it was early on. And I'm sad to say, it, it took me a while to really notice Perobeck because I was, I was mostly desperate at the time to find a Batman comic book that wasn't all over-the-top dark and, and gritty and everything. And Batman Adventures was a, uh, it was a good alternative to some other stuff that was coming out at the time. But the fact of the matter is, I'm more of a writing guy, and so that's usually what grabs me. But that began to change with Batman Adventures number eight, a, a sad and kind of poignant story that I don't even want to discuss, because if you haven't read it, you absolutely need to. But I mention that to say that I had to read Batman Adventures number eight. I think I probably read that two or three times before I realized what I was holding in my hands. Now, people say that comic books are a visual medium, but ask yourself, how often do artists truly take the lead in telling the story. Anything coming to mind? Batman Adventures number 8 was the first time I could remember reading a comic book where several pages had no dialogue. None. And I don't mean that just that they were a fancy splash page either. I mean consecutive pages all had either no dialogue or else one or two dialogue balloons at the most, and that's it. But the reader never gets lost in terms of what's happening with the story. Perobeck was such a strong storyteller that he didn't need dialogue to tell huge portions of the story. He could communicate all or most of what he needed just with his art. Now think about that for a minute. How many comics have you read where you wouldn't know the hero from the villain without the dialogue and you compare that to basically anything Perobeck ever did during his run on Batman Adventures, where Kelly Puckett, the, the writer of the book, uh, Kelly Puckett, trusted Perobeck enough to where he didn't even script the characters saying anything for pages at a stretch because he was secure in the knowledge that his story wouldn't get lost if Perobeck was the one drawing it. That is what a badass Perobeck was. Mike Perobeck had a strong mastery of the fundamentals of storytelling that you might not even realize that he's following all of the rules. If a character is... And this is just to throw out a few examples. If a character is introduced on the left side of a panel, he tends to stay on the left side of a panel. If the action is proceeding from left to right on page two, it will continue proceeding from left to right on page three. It it, it all fit together in that way. Panels were, would, they were always arranged in a logical and coherent way so that Perobeck, he may never have had to cheat, but I don't think 
he had to do it at least very many times, that's what I can swear to, that of having to, you know, use that old uh, kind of cheap trick of drawing arrows pointing to the point take you basically from one panel to the next to the next because otherwise it's completely fucking unclear which one comes next. And guys, just to put that in perspective, even Kurt fucking Swan can't make all of those claims at all times throughout his career. Now, I love Kurt Swan as much as, if not more than, the next guy, but for as rock solid as he was, Perobeck was a master of the craft before he turned 30 years old. In fact, in my view, Perobeck's real problem was that he was just ahead of his time. In 1992, everybody wanted to be Jim Lee. And they wanted to see Jim Lee's art. There wasn't much, or let me rephrase that, there wasn't as much regard for artists like Perobeck, who had a simpler and, and more streamlined uh, type of line style. In the short term, that probably hurt his chances of getting jobs, but in the long term, you can see that, that the guy, in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, was a true pioneer, I dare say, in comic book art. If Parabek was still alive today, he'd probably have his pick of comic book work to do because he was a workhorse, he made it his mission to constantly practice and improve his craft, and the market is much bigger now for art styles like his. If Mike Parabek was alive today, he would be an industry fucking rock star. Now, as it goes for Justice Society, I dare say Mike Parabek has given me my definitive Dr. Midnight. I love his take on Dr. Midnight, especially the boots. But he has affection for all of these characters, and that comes through in every single line on every single page. There's not a single moment where a character doesn't look distinctly like himself or herself. Uh, Parabek, he loves this world, he loves these characters. And for my, for my money, this is Mike Parabek's book. I mean, I know that Lynn Straczewski, he wrote some amazingly good scripts. They're, they're nice, tight, fun superhero adventures. And my hat is off. I, I, I love them. But I'm always going to regard this as, as Mike Parabek's book. This was his showcase where he could really show you what he could do with, with these characters. Especially, I don't know that he necessarily had the same type of free reign with... Uh, just a society that he seemed to have with uh, Batman Adventures when Kelly Puckett was writing it, but it just, to me, this always kind of felt a little bit more like a showcase just because of the, the, the div I guess, the kind of diverse characters that he was showing. You know, you have the Atom sharing the same page with Starman, sharing the same page with Alan Scott, and they all look they all have a specific look, let's put it that way. They all have um, a, a particular type of look. It's just, it's all very diverse uh, material that Lynn Straczewski threw at him. And so, in a lot of ways, I, I kind of regard this as being uh, Mike Perobeck's uh, vehicle. This is, um, this, is, th this is his comic book. So, I could sit here gushing for hours about what a 10-foot-long dick Mike Perobeck had, but... Um, I don't think anybody wants to hear that. So anyway, I'm going to take another break, play another couple of promos, and I'll be right back.
Yeah, 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 play it. Come on, yeah, play it loud. Play it loud. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Illogic, foolish emotions, a constant irritant. Intense turnout, three, two, on the circus, <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy, true, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, It's a super prize package worth $9,380. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake! Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill her. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, she let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia Shue. I said shut up! It's a man on! Two true freaks.com. Hey everyone, Sean Engel here. And strange disembodied voice here. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to? Oh, not much. Working with other broadcasters, palling around with Santel, prepping for the Mayan apocalypse. You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point, and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you be here now. Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram Opus US 1? Um, no, I'm going to start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern. And that supposedly is more impressive than Trucker who can receive CV signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still going to be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner. Mm, will he be getting a metal plate in his head which allows him to receive CV signals? No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs. Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18 healer is just too goofy? Precisely. <sighs> Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes? Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US-1? Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weider to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bowl podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. 
is come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Puncher's Reality, at magnus.libson.com. You can also find it on Facebook, just by searching for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners, and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled... T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind. And that's a promise. If you enjoyed the show, review it in iTunes. If you didn't enjoy the show, review it in iTunes. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promo can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is copyright Magnus Media Enterprises Limited, Wisconsin Falls, California. Thank you.